Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly biotechnology podcast that's not just about biotechnology. Providing information to help you change hearts and minds. Moving innovations to application with communication. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and a planet. And once again, we're in another week of the Talking Biotech Podcast where I realize how much I've painted myself into a corner with the title of the podcast because we're not going to talk much about biotechnology. Uh, Really, today is really about human behavior and some of the different behaviors that humans exhibit that are really strange. <laughs> We're talking with Dr. David Just. He's with the Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management. He's the Susan Eckert Lynch Professor of Science and Business at Cornell University. He gave a fascinating talk today at the Mana Institute here in Tel Aviv. And we're sitting on top of a roof in Tel Aviv on a beautiful sunlit day. <laughs> I almost say it's sunlit night, but that's not... <laughs> That doesn't happen. We're not far enough north for that. <laughs> not, not yet. But, um, but uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you. Yeah, so the really thing, thing I would really like to talk about is some of the really interesting things that came out of your observations and your research that, were, that really just blew me away. And I was really interested in everything. I was hanging on every word today. One of the things that you studied early on was obesity. But one of the big... Uh, kind of paradoxes about obesity is that it kind of goes hand in hand with malnutrition, or I should say uh, undernutrition, un- underweightness maybe, yeah. I don't know if that's the correct term but can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, in the U.S. in particular we've, we've seen this giant rise in obesity um, and, and people have paid quite a bit of attention to it because it's something new I, I guess relatively new, it's like 40 years old now <laughs> um, but it's it's something that that was different that we hadn't seen before and we didn't realize was uh, was a potential to be a big issue before then. Uh, at the same time, we've always had uh, some number who were underweight um, and and actually some extremely underweight. And if you look at the distribution in the U.S. right now, you know the number who are morbidly obese, you know, obese enough that that uh, it's really going to be a medical problem. It's actually about the same concentration as those who are severely underweight, where it's going to be a problem. 
And, and we're not unique in this. There are a lot of countries now that are starting to experience obesity, and, and right next to it they have people who are underweight and, and malnourished in some cases. Uh, it's, it really seems to be a sign that, that there's something really broken with the way we, we interact with food. Um, overall, our diets are, are not good anywhere, <laughs> right, on either end of the spectrum. And that's what's really interesting is really our, and I mean, you can maybe tell me more about this, but really is that kind of chronic obesity and eating habits that are consistent with achieving that state, is that really just another form of malnutrition? There are, there are some people who phrase it that way. I, and I, I guess I, I don't consider myself enough of an expert to say uh, exactly that, but I've, I've certainly heard people talk about obesity is really, a, a you know, they frame it as evidence that uh, that people are are eating too much because they're seeking nutrients that, that they're lacking, right? And so, so they see it as one way of manifesting sort of the same problem. Um, I, I, I would say the evidence is probably still out on whether that is exactly what's going on, but, uh, but it's, it's certainly plausible. So if we look at the drivers of this, I think someone was speaking about yesterday that we have, uh, that the United States is the only place where you can buy 1,500 calories for under a dollar. Uh, you can you can go to and, and it's just as a reflection of the good times we're in that you can go to Walmart and buy f- for under a dollar fifteen hundred calories of some sort of generic cookies. But what are some of the other things that are really driving this obesity e- epidemic? Well, so it, it it's complicated and it's hard to say exactly what's driving it. Um, there are these sort of prominent uh, you know targets that we that we look at things like sugar sweetened beverages and uh, and fast foods, fatty foods, uh, things like that, that, that we've seen increase in our diet uh, substantially. But it, it's really hard to reconcile all the evidence with a simple solution, right? Uh, w- when you look at it uh, over the course of, of the period where we saw the big increase in obesity, the biggest increases were in our, our grain intake and fat intake. Um, there was an increase in, in uh, you know added sugar intake, but it was it was pretty minuscule calorie wise relative to the others. You also had huge changes going on in, in uh, you know how much people were exercising and getting vigorous exercise. You see very little difference across the weight spectrum in terms of, of consumption of what we call junk foods. But you see pretty big disparities in fruit and vegetable consumption. You also see pretty big disparities in, in consumption of, of exercise, particularly vigorous exercise. And, and that's actually really an interesting. I've read this years ago that the idea of the four squares, the four food groups that they used to give us when I was a kid, when you were a kid, yeah. that there was the four squares. You eat one out of each square, four square meals a day or whatever they said, that that was actually a post-World War II response to the fact that most Americans were undernourished. Yes. And so, so that was your understanding. <laughs> no, that's, that's right. And actually some of the, you know, we're, we're going to talk about how we influence the way people eat. Some of the most successful campaigns to change food behavior came out of World War II and, and, it, and it was that they, they faced a huge problem with malnutrition they were, weren't able to get all the soldiers they needed, they had to reject a bunch of people for being malnourished, it's, what, it's part of what led to our school lunch program in general Yeah, We talk about how to fix this what are some of the strategies that have been proposed and really how likely are they to work? Well I, I guess 
the way I think about the, the history of this, it sort of started with the, the movement to have better nutrition information. And I, I think we sort of over-promised when we first put out all this uh, nutrition information and sort of thought, all people need is the information and they'll make good decisions. I, I might be overstating that a little bit. Yeah, that never worked. Because <laughs> it never worked. <laughs> and, it, and it didn't. It, it, uh, you know, if, if you look, there's something like 60% of people use the nutrition labels, which is good. Right? I mean, that's actually higher than I guess I, w- I, I would have thought a priori. But it moves people's behavior in very sort of marginal ways. And it tends to move behavior only in those who are really educated or people who are abusing them in, in some way. Um, you know, so, so people who are focused in on only one nutrient and, and ignore the others, that's probably not helpful. Right? But as somebody who studies the way people respond to this stuff, like the psychology of this, I was really, I'm, I'm talking about you now, not me, I was really uh, enthralled and really interested in the idea of reactance. Yes. And when you talk about, okay, let's come up with rules and come up with ways to give people guidance, that usually it backfires. And can you tell me a little bit about that? And maybe the good example about ketchup. Yeah, so it, I, I guess... You know, when when nutrition information didn't work quite as well as I think people originally thought, there really was this push for much more paternalistic policies, policies that are going to tell people, you know, how to behave in some direct way. Um, one sort of I, I almost silly example from uh, upstate New York, there was a school that uh, that wanted to limit sugar, added sugar consumption, so they limited the amount of ketchup the kids could have. They have one packet of ketchup per lunch and if you've ever had uh, school lunch there aren't a lot of fries you can cover with one packet of ketchup so the kids the kids pushed back they were they were incensed they, they threw a, a bit of a protest um, I guess the seniors did um, it had become such a point of contention for them that when uh, when graduation rolled around they're they're walking across the stage and every single one of them when they shake the principal's hand for the last time hands him a packet of ketchup so that he's he's like you know drowning in in packets of ketchup by the end of this ceremony and and he had a bit of a chuckle over it thought it was funny i um you know the school lunch staff seemed to think it was a little bit funny too but i i guess to me the the takeaway is well if they care that much about it then then you haven't really changed their mind right you haven't really changed their habits and and unfortunately they're not going to live in that school lunch environment the whole time they're going to be at mcdonald's sometime and and they're going to go for all the ketchup they can get um and, and they actually push back on it right they, it's you know it's not i'm going to go for one packet of ketchup because the nice people at school told me to it's it's i'm going to grab handfuls and handfuls because I've been liberated. I'm, I'm now free to do whatever I want. <laughs> no, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. It really ties in with human psychology and how we behave you know, in times of scarcity and how, we, how it really dramatically changes our response. But one way that you talked about that I thought was really cool that I'm going to have to remember is when you talk about applying these kind of paternalistic uh, rules or regulations to people and how they reject that, there are some ways you can do it where they just don't notice. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. Can you talk a little bit about that? Part of the big issue is is how sort of in your face these regulations are, how uh, how much they they change visibly the choice set, right? So there are some ways you can you can change up the choice. Uh, I, I won't say the choice set, but the choice environment. So it sort of highlights some of the um, some of the better choices. 
I, this this is related to what we call libertarian paternalism, right? The idea that you keep that choice set exactly the same. You don't restrict people's choices at all, but you shift up the framing of the choices so people are naturally attracted to something that's better. So in, in the case of ketchup, instead of limiting them to one packet of ketchup, right? Put out a big, uh, you know, one of the big pumps for ketchup and make it so it's hard to pump. Nobody, you're not restricting anybody. They can pump it a second time or a third time if they really want to, but it, it's it's inconvenient, yeah. and they'll stop doing it as much. So the lazy ketchup eater is kind of sunk. <laughs> yeah, that's right. If you, unless you're really uh, really into ketchup, you know, you can get the ketchup if you really really want it. But yeah, well, when it hard. becomes a CrossFit event, I guess. But but the, so the other interesting effect, of, another interesting aspect of this that you talked about with respect to. Um, people pushing back against paternalistic control was the Bloomberg effect. And I thought this was great. So tell me more about the, the Bloomberg effect. Well, so, so Michael Bloomberg was the, the mayor of New York City. He, uh, he had the, the laudable goal to try and reduce um, full-calorie soda consumption um, within the city. And he, he tried doing this in a bunch of different ways. Uh, and, and one of those sort of caught our eye because it caught fire in the news. Um, it, it was He wanted to... Uh, make it so that you could not sell sodas that were larger than 16 ounces. Now, you got to be a little bit careful because he didn't have the power to do this everywhere. So it was only in in chain restaurants and uh, and you know cinemas and and, and places like that. Um, so it wasn't going to be everywhere. People were still going to have access to large sodas if they wanted them. And and interestingly enough, this would have only affected something like 0.6 percent of soda sales. I mean, it was like really tiny. And, and you, you could even argue this wasn't really changing the choice set all that much in an important way. But it was so all over the news and people were throwing protests that we decided to go, look, what's the effect? And we first started with a, a lab experiment uh, and, and got people to come in, gave them sodas, and gave them packets of information to fill out. One set was given packets that had you know a description of this policy um, that was associated with Bloomberg and, and one of the ads that went with it. And the other set was given unrelated stuff. Actually, uh, they were given ads related to smoking and cancer. Um, and what you saw is the people who had this, this packet with Bloomberg's policy in it drank more soda while they were filling out the packet. And, and specifically, it was the males that were pushing back and, and sort of rebelling against this policy. And, and interestingly enough, you know, this led us to, to think, well, if this is happening here, did it happen in real life? We went out and we looked uh, at, you know, using using real data from sales throughout the U.S. Was there this spike in sales of soda in New York City following the announcement of this policy? And, and for about a month, you see it that there's, yeah, people started buying more soda. It was it's actually very substantial at a household level. It's really amazing because it's just that little bit of a trigger. And what it really tells us is that, I mean, do you think that this was conscious or that this is just the way people behave in a way to push back? Or is this people saying, hey, that Bloomberg, if he's going to touch my, he's touching my Mountain Dew, you know, what do you think? Is it, is it something that we do subconsciously or is this something that is really a conscious reaction to that, to that scarcity? I, I think it's a mix of both, um, particularly in a case where it becomes that visible. You know, there are people who see the news and, and watch this and vilify Bloomberg openly, and I think they are actually sitting down scheming about how they're going to stick it to Bloomberg. Uh, but I, I don't think that's the full effect. I don't think that could possibly account for the full effect. It's got to be a tiny percentage. Most of us just 
see this and feel this sort of threat subconsciously to, to you know, what we normally do, and we push back on it naturally, and we, we do something different. It's really fascinating. And we're talking with Dr. David Jess. He's at the Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management at Cornell University. And we'll be back with the Talking Biotech podcast, talking about uh, genetic engineering and GMO labeling when we come back at the other side. The goal of the Talking Biotech podcast is to provide information about modern food and farming technologies with the hope of increasing their safe use in areas that help farmers, the environment, and the food insecure. It helps plug a gap that existed between scientists and the general public. And I've urged other people to participate in this discussion, but what's in it for you? Well, back in July, I attended the American Society of Plant Biology Conference in Montreal, and it was really great to meet so many people that really enjoy the podcast. And so to all of you students, postdocs, faculty, anybody else, here's an easy way to build your CV and develop your brand by simply participating in sharing the science. The Plant Cell is arguably the most prestigious plant science journal, but the papers are really dense and super important. We've begun an initiative called Plant Cell Extracts. Volunteer authors reinterpret the dense scientific reports in the form of short articles written for a lay audience, and we help edit. So think about writing for Plant Cell Extracts. Read the articles at medium.com forward slash plant cell extracts and share them with people that would like to learn more about how to understand the nuts and bolts of modern plant science, new technologies that can benefit people and a planet. And we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. And today we're talking with Dr. David Just. He's at the Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management at Cornell University. And he's a behavioral... Uh, well, how do you describe exactly what your position is? Because it seems like multidisciplinary all rolled into one. Okay, so it is. I, I, so I'm a behavioral economist, which by itself is something of a, of a multidisciplinary area. It's, it's a bunch of psychologists and a bunch of economists few sociologists thrown in there for for good measure yeah so so and, and so that but that's really a useful um combination in lots of ways to look at some of the complicated problems we're up against and one of them is this idea of product labeling particularly genetic engineering or gmo labeling and uh what was some of the research that your group has done and what are some of the results that you found Sure. So this is actually some of the first things I, I sort of cut my teeth on, actually, looking at acceptance of GMOs and how much how much people were willing to, to pay to avoid or to, to find GMOs, one or the other. Um, and actually, some of the early work I did with, uh, with a colleague here in Israel, we were looking at, you know, how people trade off GMOs and non-GMO equivalents, right? And, and we started out with some hypotheticals. So these aren't products that are actually available, but, uh, but just wanted to see how people responded. And we'd ask them questions like, you know, would you rather have GMO beef or, uh, or conventional beef? And people would be willing to pay something like 35% more for the, the conventional beef. But if you came back and asked them a, a different question, if you asked them, suppose you have GMO beef that's been genetically modified to look more attractive, to look more red, versus conventional beef that's been dyed red. And then suddenly it flips. Suddenly people wanted the, the genetically modified version instead of the dyed beef. And if you ask them about poultry and you said, do you want, do you want chicken that's been um, genetically modified 
uh, to resist disease? Or do you want chicken that's been fed antibiotics? They want the genetically modified chicken, right? So it, essentially what it appears is that people have this sort of pristine idea that they're using as a reference for all of their decisions. And so when you say GMO, if there's anything, any question in their mind that, that there's some problem with GMO, right? Well, in comparison to the pristine, you know, perfect good, I don't want the GMO. But if you tell them about what this other good is like, you know, the production problems they've had and how they overcome it without the genetic uh, engineering technology, then they start to recognize, no, this is this makes sense to me. This is something that I, I can accept. Yeah, and this is something I've heard about before in other contexts, uh, mostly that in the way that I think about it, and you can tell me if I'm, how, how wrong I am here or if I am, is uh, that people tend to gravitate towards the least disgusting thing, <laughs> like the thing that freaks them out the least. And that if you say beef or beef that's antibiotic-free, it doesn't mean the other one has it. But it means that there is one that says it doesn't, right? So, so, so there's a difference in disgust. But if you say uh, antibiotic-free beef or beef that came from an animal that had an infection because they refused to treat it, <laughs> now the antibiotic beef is looking really good. No, that's, that's about how it works. I mean, the, we are looking for this sort of least disgusting thing um, in our choice set. But how we evaluate what's disgusting or not is really subject to how it's framed. It's subject to, you know, the selective bit of information that makes its way to us. And, and so while you might have labels that are perfectly accurate, the labels, labels can mislead, right? Truth can mislead us into, into focusing on some bits of information and throwing out others. Um, just just because of the way our brain functions, we don't we don't sit there and contemplate the whole thing, right? We make decisions in in very brief moments, and we have to take shortcuts. And you see you see the antibiotic free versus antibiotics, and it doesn't occur to you that uh, the disease might might actually play into this. <laughs> yeah, well, the, but it's it's and it's really kind of insidious how this is used because I've heard of examples where there'll be let's just talk about milk and I'll tell the short story. You have a gallon of milk that's three dollars that just says milk, and you've got a gallon of milk that's five dollars that says gluten free milk. That there are people who will not buy any milk because they only have three dollars, but they don't want any of that gluten even though it's not there. So it's also this weird deficit of understanding what a label means to some degree, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, part of the, the real challenge with trying to influence consumers with accurate information um, is just how little cognitive resources we have when we're in the supermarket making decisions. And I, I would wager... While you know you or I walks by and we see uh, you know gluten-free milk, we immediately chuckle. Um, there are you know there are intelligent people who know what gluten-free means if they sat and thought about it. That it wouldn't occur to them in the instant while they're in the grocery store because they're they're doing other things. It'd be like trying to think on your feet while you're giving a presentation, right? It's you've got your mind on other things, and so you don't put two and two together. Gluten really is wheat. There's no wheat and milk. <laughs> <laughs> so, so why you have some labels that are being used as a proxy for a warning, um, even though it's a non-existent threat? Do we also see examples of labels that are used to provide a halo, even if it's non-existent? 
Oh, there are absolutely examples of that. I mean, that, that's that's exactly what's happened with this gluten-free label. Is is there are so many times it's applied to things where it's very obvious gluten doesn't exist, but people are putting the label on it because when you have the label there and your your neighbor, or your competitor doesn't have that label, you've got some sliver of the market that they couldn't get now, right? And, and so you see that all over the place. Um, you know, you see this with. Uh, GM free, you know, genetic, uh, the the products that advertise that they don't have GMOs in them, right? I, a lot of them are products for which it wouldn't be possible to have GMOs there at the moment. There's just nothing marketable in that space yet. Yeah, it's, I, I wrote an essay on Medium last year about the No Ghost Project, about real estate brokers who would put us put a sign out in front saying this house is certified ghost free <laughs> because you know there are a certain segment of the population that does subscribe to the paranormal that if you could certify that a home had no intervening specters <laughs> that this would be a value-added possibility right and so it, it's a way of marketing nothing but still being able to sway the decisions of a consumer yeah, and, and this isn't new, by the way. I mean, this is, this is something that's been going on uh, for as long as advertising has been going on. Uh, marketers figured out, even, you know, in the days of traveling salesmen, that, uh, that they could claim properties that, uh, that were sort of vacuous, and it added to their list of things they could say this product did or, or was good at, and, and people bought onto it. They, they value it for no particular reason. What about uh, health Halos and this kind of issue because this is another flip side of the warning label that uh, that the implicit goodness that comes along with some of our popular uh, labels and standards and maybe you can comment on that a touch. Sure. So the health halo is something that's uh, that you know been widely studied and you find that uh, goods that that appear to be healthy or people sort of reduced to this gist of being healthy that they take on all these sort of super properties um, that, that are well beyond what actually is, is really in the product. We, we got interested in how this relates to, to issues like this, uh, like genetic engineering. We, we actually did it by looking at the uh, USDA organic label and, uh, and gave people products. I was, I was working with a master student, uh, Jenny Lee. Um, I, was, I was on her committee and she was the one who actually did all the work, so I should mention her. <laughs> um, but People would have identical products, uh, sometime with the USDA organic label and sometime without, right? And when it had the label, things tasted better. It was clearly lower calorie. It had less fat. It was, you know, it, it had more of the vitamins that you were looking for. They, you know, ascribed all of these incredible properties to these goods that were completely identical just because of that label. And, and of course... If you look at the you know the actual requirements for USDA organic, it has nothing to do with any of that. And in fact, there might be some good reason to believe there might be some some issues in which there's a you know a problem with uh, with the health of some of the organic products. Oh yeah, you can. Uh, there are you know in overall people who are real organic farmers who know what they're doing. It's not an issue. But I think there are plenty of. Um, operations that that and at least like farmers market and stuff where they'll say oh we're all organic and you know but you know that it's a little bit dubious because you know they're they're doing something like oh we have organic olives or organic uh you know some sort of really intense uh input dependent crop that you know would be a real challenge like i can't grow it conventionally 
because in Florida it's just unpermissive, and someone's got you know like organic uh, you know whatever, um, and and I, I just always wonder like uh, can that actually be done, and uh, and some but to your point that could there even be a heightened risk because of uh, because of adopting a certain strategy? So I suppose maybe with some of the niche farmers who maybe are making the claims where they haven't really done what they said they were going to do. Uh, that could be a problem. Yeah, I do, so I don't know specifically about organics. I, I, uh, I have a colleague at uh, Minnesota, Mark Belmar, who did a, an interesting study looking at farmers markets, and prevalence of farmers markets within a state is is pretty correlated with uh, outbreaks of, of foodborne illness, um, which tells you there's something funny going on in that set. But that's not necessarily organics, right? That's right. that includes a broad set of local goods, right? And it's also um, you know, farmers market by definition, you're leaving stuff out unrefrigerated, a lot of handling. <laughs> you know, you got people who are changing their baby's diaper with their left hand and then coming and touching all your fruits and vegetables. <laughs> and I mean, not not the people who are selling, but the the, the buyers. Yeah. And at the one I go to, um, you know, get great stuff. But people always bring their big dog, and you got their big dumb dog who's got its nose sniffing. You know, like like the. Uh, donut or whatever's on top of the table or the muffins it's really kind of weird so it doesn't surprise me that it happens but but i guess i'm off topic but but what else do you what else have you uh gleaned from your research in terms of the area of food and food labeling is there any other consumer behaviors that are of particular interest well it 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 just astounds me uh really how easy it is to imply that something is healthy without actually making much of a claim and, and really, that seems to be a large part of the market right now, uh, or I should say a growing part of the market. It, it, it was recognized as a, a niche, a small niche, um, probably even just a decade ago. But, uh, but we've seen this sort of growing number of, of uh, you know, checkbox items that people are interested in, um, you know, avoiding high fructose corn syrup, um, you know, fair trade labels, you know, a whole bunch of things like that. And some of those are, are, are clearly things that people can value and they make sense. Um, some people will actually, you know, like gluten-free, some people actually need to have that information there one way or the other. But there's a large portion of people who uh, just ascribe some sort of value to it, and it's amorphous. And it shows up in their, their guess of, of, you know, I'm going to be healthier by choosing this. I, I'm more, um, more virtuous for taking this, that, or the other. The thing that that you know part of the danger with this though is, if I feel like I've done something good for myself, I tend to give myself license to do something else, right? So if I think buying the organic food is healthier, I now can indulge. I can uh, I can go for the dessert or I could go for something else. You might end up actually doing yourself a, a lot of harm um, by by ascribing these phantom properties. That's a really interesting point, and it also kind of came to me when you're saying this that. Are the people who are most concerned and banging the table and saying, I have a right to know what's in my food, are they the ones, the people who are demanding these labels and saying we want more transparency, are they really not being as um, critical in thinking about their food choices? So the people who are demanding the most about what's in their food, are they really more likely to be deceived? I, so that's a really good question. And and it's it's very hard to you know to get good data to sort of segment out people and say here are the ones who care most about this and 
um, and whether they've got accurate views or not. So you could sort of think about it a couple of different ways, though. I mean, if, if they're not, then they have to be aware at some level that the labels uh, are, are sort of this tail wagging the dog because it's it's a very small group that's uh, that's act you know being activist and pushing for this huge number of sort of certifications and labeling systems and things like that um, and there's a large segment of the population that gets swayed by them without knowing what they mean at all um, and and that aren't activists that aren't really you know fire in the belly we've got to do these things um, and we've got to weigh the benefits of both groups in some way and that's that becomes really tricky and do you have any personal feelings on labeling genetic engineered uh well i should say foods that contain ingredients that came from genetically engineered crops i have to be really clear about that because everybody says oh it's genetically engineered food and there's no such thing i mean it's <laughs> it's, it's it's ingredients that came from crops that, had, that were genetically engineered do you have any particular feelings on that i i guess so I'm sympathetic to the idea that people should be able to figure this out. They should be able to find this information in some way um, if they want it. I also feel pretty strongly that we shouldn't be putting labels on things that mislead the average consumer. Um, so I, I don't know if I could say I just have strong feelings that I'm going to shout from the rooftops and pound on the table, but I think the right way to accomplish that is to make GMO labels really um, you know, sort of inconspicuous. Make it something so that anybody who wants to have this can flip around the box and find it or, or you know, find some way of figuring out whether this product is something they want to uh, engage in or not. But that's not going to you know, take the random consumer who doesn't care about GMOs and suddenly force them to care. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's kind of the big fear is that, you know, the folks who are against genetic engineering, your Jeffrey Smiths, your Andrew Kimbrells, they've all said, once we have a label, then we can get a ban. Because once we have a label, we can use that as a as a skull and crossbones, essentially, and and I do think that their words are true. There, I think they've been that that the idea of having a voluntary label or even a non-GMO project label, which yeah. tells you this is you know this should give you if you're worried about that, then buy that stuff. Yeah. But that's not good enough for them. They want that proxy for a skull and crossbones. And, and uh, you know, and, and right now that, that discussion is going on at the USDA level. What are they going to do with this bioengineered label, which is kind of cheesy in my opinion. But, um, you know, do you have any thoughts on that or how it may be misused? Oh, I, I think one way or the other, if, if there is any label, the activists will be trying to misuse it. I mean, they're, they're, I, I don't think they, uh, they state it as openly as, as perhaps they should, but the goal really is to try and influence that group that doesn't care yeah. right and that that's really where they're trying to go with this and if if you know if my understanding of the science was on their side i could i could be empathetic but i can't be because my understanding of the science is is not on their side that these goods actually have uh have merit they uh, there's no danger that uh, that you know that's withstood uh, scientific scrutiny that i've i've been able to um, tell from my read, uh, and there are s real benefits that are are potential for this this you know this technology, and and part of the problem with it is it, it's a it's a really strange thing to label because you're labeling a tool, not an ingredient, 
right? Is you're labeling a tool that is is not is not monolithic, right? There's there's a difference between you know BT technology or Roundup Ready technology or or, or whatever it might be um, that they're using, and and what it does to the types of of processes and inputs that go into that that product, and really I think that's the information that might be more interesting to people is is what what has this been exposed to what do i need to worry about with this rather than what what you know did, did it use genetic engineering in some sense now really well put and so david just thank you very much for joining me on the talking biotech podcast if people wanted to learn more about your program or what you do uh where can they find you either on social media or maybe on university websites so I, I guess the the first place you can find me on Twitter it's uh, at at David Just One, um, but I also I've uh, been engaged in a podcast of my own with uh, with some of my master's students. It's called Mad Hat Economics, um, and you can find us on. You, we actually have a website. Uh, you can search for Mad Hat Economics and, and find it, or you can uh, you can find us on Twitter as well. Mad Hat Econ. Which, if you uh, read quickly, looks like Mad Hate Con. <laughs> and, and, and listen to that in addition to the Talking Biotech podcast. <laughs> and, well, no, you know, or either one. If you look at Talking Biotech, it looks like uh, Talk Ing Bio Tech. Okay, there you go. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining me. It was a lot of fun. It was fun. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on the Talking Biotech Podcast. Write a review on iTunes. Uh, tell a friend. Tell two friends. Tell a lot of people about this. You know, we're, uh, we always have uh, been very fortunate to have a great following, and we'd only like it to grow. But in the presence of more and more content, it's uh, harder and harder to grow an audience. So share this content if, you're inter- if you find it interesting. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech. Sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.